Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Paul Meany. Joining us today is Catherine Wilson. She's a visiting presidential professor of philosophy at the Graduate Center at City University of New York and author of the new book, How to Be an Epicurean, The Ancient Art of Living Well. Welcome to Free Thoughts. Thank you. Between Stoicism, a bit of Aristotelianism, Epicureanism, even Buddhism in a certain way, ancient ethics seems to be really hot right now. Everyone is into it. There's lots of how the Stoics can help you hack your morning sorts of articles. What's going on there? <laughs> I think it's uh, um, two things. Um, one is uh, we've been flooded with self-help books. Every time you go through the airport, there's a big rack of them, how to fix your life and <clears throat> solve all your life problems and get ahead in your career and uh, make millions in real estate. Um, and at the same time, uh, philosophy, moral philosophy has become so technical that um, very few people understand what anybody's talking about outside of their quite narrow specialism. Whereas ancient philosophy is really pretty accessible. They were talking to each other. Uh, the, they were talking to students. And um, people find this... Um, Deeper than self-help, but at the same time applicable to problems in their in their own lives. Was their project then? I mean, so there's, yeah, it's 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 easier to just pick up and read. Well, not Epicurus because we don't have much, but later thinkers articulating these ideas. But it's it's relatively easy to pick these guys up, and it's much more complicated to pick up a treatise on metaethics that just came out from Oxford University Press today. But is there something also about the nature of their project, like a difference between the way that they're approaching philosophical questions of, in this case, living well, than the way that we tend to think about it today? Uh, yeah, I think so. Because um, what they were trying to do is fit their ethics and their political philosophy often into a system that was much larger with a cosmology, a theory of nature, theory of life and death, probably a theology or, in the case of Epicurus, an anti-theology, and Lucretius. And uh, philosophers today don't try to do that. In fact, you'd look very eccentric if you try to write a theory of everything. Yeah, so these philosophers, they had extremely broad opinions on all kinds of things. And so did Epicurus write about like just nature and politics and ethics all in one? Like, is it all just one cohesive whole for him, not the separation of disciplines we have today at all? I think it's going to be hard to answer that question till we've recovered more of the ancient books that he wrote, ancient texts. Um, he supposedly wrote 37 different treatises, calling the books, on these topics like kingship and nature and love. And we don't know because um, these were all destroyed the majority of the manuscripts in the in the eruption of Vesuvius and are just now being unrolled and read and reconstructed. When they are reconstructed, I think we'll be able to see how systematic they are. But Lucretius, I think, really did make a system out of it in on the nature of things. There are one 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 topic really does flow very naturally into the next. So we'll, we'll plunge into Epicureanism specifically then. And I mean, I think for a lot of listeners, an Epicurean is like that that Roman robot on Futurama um, or is is the, the glutton um, or is the, you know, 
the name of people who are really into cooking magazines. But what what is Epicureanism? What's the core of his set of ideas? I think one of the um, one of the central ideas, and you're right. I mean, that's our cliches are of somebody with two forks digging into some big pork roast or something, um, right? Or being very finicky about their choices of wine and cigars and things. I think um, one the the central idea in Epicureanism, I think, is the idea of the limit. Well, first materialism and second the limit. So, as you know, the Epicureans think there are just atoms and void, ultimately. Nothing else, no supernatural entities, no gods, no souls. So everything has got to be somehow a combination of these small particles. Not exactly what we think today, but there's certainly a, a historical relation. And the idea of the limit is that Everything is made up is a combination of these particles. It sticks together for a while. It can undergo different transformations and changes, but ultimately it's going to fall apart. So you can't expect anything to be permanent, though you can expect things to have the sort of lifetime that things like that should generally have. And that applies to the cosmos, to political empires, to people's life and health, and many other things you can think of. And who was? What do we know about Epicurus himself? That uh, uh, Epicurus was the founder of his school. First, um, emigrated to Athens. He wasn't born there, and he seems to have been supported by wealthy friends. I've always wondered about you know, how did he get the wherewithal to buy a house in the middle of a garden, that is to say, a grove of trees, and um, feed and entertain all these people for so many years. Well, apparently he had help from other people who approved of his philosophy. I'm not sure how they were making their money, but <clears throat> he certainly wasn't uh, uh, involved in politics and commerce or the usual ways that people made money back then. So he had a school. Uh, he had followers and students, males and females, um, apparently maybe some former slaves. And they took their meals together and had conversations and probably took notes, wrote books. Uh, so it feels like when you read about Epicurus, the vast majority of people at the time did not understand what he was doing whatsoever. And they thought he had some sort of giant house that had loads of different meals and it was really lavish and they're always having lots of fun and doing all these crazy things. So the kind of life he actually led, what did it look like roughly from what we know? Uh, well, he, um, Epicurus says you only need a little bread and cheese and water. Um, you don't need fish and drinking bouts and things like that. So meals were probably fairly modest, though I don't believe they were quite as modest as that bread and cheese, um, probably uh, the usual things that uh, other Athenians ate. I don't know how much drinking there was in the Platonic corpus. You get the sense that philosophy and alcohol went together, still do in some quarters. Um, and I don't really have a sense of um, no, uh, whether that was whether it was the same way for the Epicureans. And then we don't have a body of his writing in the way that we do with Plato or Aristotle. So how are we – I mean you 
have written a book about Epicureanism. Like, what are the what are the sources that you're drawing on for this? Uh, we have a collection of sayings, the Vatican sayings, and we have um, these scrolls that are being unrolled uh, from Herculaneum and being reconstructed. And we have um, the testimony of Diogenes Laertius, who wrote these 10 books on the philosophers and who gave uh, the best account that um, that he could from letters that Epicurus had written that he had access to. And otherwise, we have Lucretius, who did have Epicurus's um, book called On Nature, and who then wrote his On the Nature of Things based on that book of Epicurus's. We, we talked a little bit about their metaphysics, um, the, the atoms and void and the limit. But one of the interesting things you can talk about briefly in your book is, did they, did they discover evolution? <laughs> uh, they discovered what, what was later called the system of perishing. Because uh, they had to explain how if there were no gods, no creator god, uh, which I think all the other major uh, sects of ancient philosophy, maybe with the exception of Aristotle, who thought the world had always been here, they had to explain you know, how could there be plants and animals with their incredible structures and functions. So they argued, well, atoms came into combination, and some of these combinations were stable, others were unstable. The stable ones persisted, and eventually um, of stable combinations that could reproduce themselves persisted. That's one account you get. In other places, um, Lucretius just describes animals as springing from the earth from seeds. So sometimes Adam seems to mean seed or seminal principle or something. But system of perishing was there. And of course, everybody in the 18th century knew about this. Well, everybody who was interested in this problem, if God didn't create plants and animals, who did? They were familiar with it, and Darwin was certainly familiar with it himself. So from all these kind of abstract metaphysical principles, did Epicurus derive any sort of ethical philosophy from all this? Um, yes, very much so. Um, since um, because of the, the principle of the limit, we're all going to die. That's the end. There's going to be no reward and no retaliation for our good or bad deeds. So what should we be doing? Um, we should be trying to enjoy ourselves by avoiding the sources of pain in ordinary life as much as possible. And we should also avoid harming other people. I think um, at some point, Epicureanism got to be seen as a selfish, egoistic philosophy, but it really wasn't at the beginning because that prevention of harm principle was really quite fundamental. Where does that, that move from, so we're all kind of limited beings that are going to die to, um, so I, I can see how you get from there to like you should pursue happiness for yourself because we, you only get so much time and you're not, you know, make the best of it you can and you're not going to get rewarded in an afterlife. Um, so you shouldn't really factor that in. So do what's going to be good for you. But how do we get from that that human beings is limited to caring about the well-being of 
others? Is it, I mean, so on the one hand, I imagine it like it's good for me to care about you um, and to be nice to you because it instills good feelings in me um, or I don't like seeing it makes it's it's hard to watch other people suffer something like that or maybe or that there's recognizing that you are also a limited being there's something wrong with making your limited time here suffer is it is it related to those or is how how do you get that connection yeah that i i think that that's right they're both they're they're really two ways to get at it and um, one is the sort of prudential way. So Epicurus thought when you're around people that you know, um, if you are manipulative, deceptive, untrustworthy, <clears throat> you're going to get social punishment. People will avoid you and they won't interact with you. And that idea became very influential in the 18th century with uh, Hume and Smith sort of arguing that you don't need a transcendental source for morality because social relations, praise and blame will, will take care of it. Um, but he admitted that, well, sometimes people do get away with being you know, really terrible friends. People like them anyway because they have other qualities. But this sort of um, general altruism, right? why should I care about people who are not my friends, who can't retaliate against me? They're on the other side of the world. And there the Epicureans were not like the Stoics who thought that benevolence should just should extend itself from me to the family and further and further out to the rest of the world. So they didn't really have a theory of um, – no, universal benevolence or anything like that. But it was easy to get from where they were to utilitarianism, which 19th century writers did, Bentham and Mill especially, just by thinking, what's, what's worth having? Well, pleasure and freedom from pain. If it's so for me, it's so for others. And then you have to add the premise, I suppose, um, why shouldn't I increase my pleasure at their expense, causing pain to them? And I think that's just, um, it's just another premise that, that justice is the avoidance of the harm that one person can do to another. Is Epicureanism just utilitarianism then as we currently understand? I mean, obviously it wasn't because utilitarianism wasn't a thing. But are there, are there meaningful differences between those two theories? Well, the Epicureans would, would put it in terms of justice and convention. But I think it is a utilitarian theory, except that as, as you were suggesting, they weren't really interested in politics. They thought politics is painful. Stay out of it. <clears throat> you don't want the vexation. Um, but if you had to assign them a theory, I think that's the one you would assign them. Why were Epicureans so against going into politics? I, Lucretius talked all about why you shouldn't do it at this time and whatnot. Why is that the case? <clears throat> well, look what happens to people. Um, <laughs> they get mixed up in scandals. They get insulted. They get attacked by their political rivals and accused of incompetence and stupidity and not understanding things and having bad values. I mean, it's really a lot of assault on your personality. And what do you get for it? Uh, well, you might get power um, or fame, or you might be able to do some good, but they seemed rather skeptical of your ability to do some good. Of course, they're living in 
Greek and Roman times, and um, the, the power sources are not uh, democratic. They have a, a theory of the state, though, so it's not like they just didn't talk about the political realm in any form. So, what is their what is their theory of the state? In, in both, I think they talk about both as a, a story of its origins and a, a theory of its, I guess, legitimacy or authority. That was um, the theory of the state is, I'm sure, in one of those lost books of Epicurus because he did write on politics. But it doesn't show up in the materials that we have, as far as I know. And what shows up in Lucretius is the story of um, of humanity's um, voyage from solitary, um, animalistic existence to civilization, with the inferences that you can you can draw from it. Uh, but the uh, the sixth book of of Lucretius. Uh, describing the plague of Athens is sometimes thought to be a metaphor for the sick state that is just so corrupt and, and rotten that it's just going to collapse. So are Epicureans kind of like anarchists want to go back to the time when there was no political power? Or can we never really go back to that state of innocence we had before? Um, right. Um, at the, at Lucretius is very even-handed. So says, on one hand, civilization is great. We've got, um, he would say, sculptures and roads and, and poetry and things like that. We would probably say drugs and transportation and things like that. Um, so that's wonderful, he thinks. Uh, lots of benefits to living in a, a technologically advanced society. At the same time, he really feels that um, virtue has been lost and that warfare especially is the great curse of civilization. Would that, though, push to um, – that, that would push to Paul's point, though, of – I mean, do they connect necessarily warfare to the state in the sense that – so one, I guess one way to think about warfare would be we need the state to protect us from the warlords, right? Um, and so that would be an argument against going back to state of nature anarchism. Um, but the other possible way to think of it would be that the state is the warlords, right? That the, like the reason we have war is because we have states that go to war. Um, and, and so therefore the way we would limit war would be to get rid of those things that go – to war, so there's like a tension there, uh, right? Yeah, I think it's I think it's really both because uh, in the history of humanity, you have people maybe fighting with with sticks and clubs and things, but um, nothing terribly bad happens. They just run away at the end of it. But as soon as you have wealth accumulation and princes and kings and a nobility, then you have to start defending the city. That becomes very important in Plato. So the state becomes. The owner of the military, which becomes a basically parasitic class, living on everybody else's labor, waiting for uh, the need for them to do something. And you also become aggressive because uh, now you've got all these soldiers there sitting around and the neighbors have some goods and gold and treasure and fields and population. Um, why not go use your people to see what you can get? So, yes, the growth of the state and um, all the evils of militarism 
go together for both reasons. Could you? How could you get rid of them? Uh, could you really go back to right people living in villages with sticks and clubs and and no armies? No, that doesn't make any sense. But the other way out is the um, is the way that Hobbes thought was sensible. You centralize authority. So instead of having rival princes and people jockeying to become emperor of the world, um, you get a centralized authority that can serve a policing function. Is this so – sometimes you hear like the, the, the Epicureans had like a proto-social contract theory of government, um, which was – Hobbes's theory as well is that is that true? Did they have something that we can reasonably call that? And then did that did that influence Hobbes? Yes, absolutely. Um, because if you don't think that um, <clears throat> that the model for the state lies in the regular movements of the heavens or the commands of God revealed in sacred scriptures, um, what else could it depend on? Just the agreement of people about what kinds of rules they want to have for themselves. And that will change, they emphasized, as circumstances change. Was it controversial to take the beliefs on of someone like Epicurus? Because throughout history, he might have been thought of as an atheist almost, because he didn't believe in the benevolence of the gods. They don't really care what happens. Everything's just atoms. Was it controversial to be an Epicurean uh, throughout European history? Oh, yes. Yeah. And that may be one reason that Epicurus was a little careful about what he said. He said, there are gods, but they're not gods like ordinary people believe, but you should still have a pious attitude. You should still take part in the festivals and visit the temples. Impiety didn't work out for Socrates. Impiety didn't work out for Socrates. No, no. Lucretius is much more damning about about religion. So he starts off um, talking about the uh, the Iphigenia story where Agamemnon sacrifices his daughter to get the goddess to change the winds. And he says, that's the kind of thing religion makes you do. So, but of course, the, the, uh, the Christian authors and also Jewish and Islamic authors, uh, the Epicuri, they were, they were dangerous people. Isn't there a painting of uh, Lucretius stomping on the snake of superstition or something like that? Uh, yes, uh, Epicurus. Um, I think it's Lucretius crowning Epicurus who has the the snake or dragon of superstition underfoot. What? So we, there's there's the influence on some of those Enlightenment thinkers. But what is his? What is the scope of I guess Epicurean influence? Because we hear obviously like Aristotle was maybe the most influential philosopher who's ever lived, right? Um, and and the Stoics had their hands on the reins of power throughout um, Rome. But what what kind of – what does Epicurus' uh, influence look like going forward? OK. I think Epicurus is more important ultimately than either Aristotle or the Stoics. Oh, really? So, yeah, I'll take that That's position. That's a big claim. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. So first, um, for the sciences – um, you know, form and matter as basic ontology, that didn't really get developed into anything we're familiar with now. Whereas atomism, uh, you can trace it historically from Epicureanism to 17th century revival of atomism and refinements and developments uh, right down to the present day. 
It's a very continuous history. And the Epicurean attitude towards science, which is um, everything has an explanation. That's a, a physical explanation. Now, we, of course, we don't think it's just atoms smashing into each other and rebounding or anything like that. But there's a physical explanation, but it's going to be hard to get to because we can't see those particles. And all we can do is is propose models of what's happening and then try to find ways to test them. But there will often be different possible explanations for the same phenomenon. And that's why science is difficult. And that's why there's much about the world that we don't understand, but that we potentially can. So science is one stream. And the other stream is this political stream that we were talking about earlier. Um, because if they're just, uh, if everything's just atoms and void, and if normativity is convention and decision that changes as circumstances change, um, then there are no no timeless truths. There are no political models that are necessarily the best for all times and places. And human welfare becomes what you really want to have in focus all the time. So I can see from this, like, there's one really great point and one point that worries me. The point that's great is that it kind of demystifies government or the state. It's not this magical entity. It's not God-given. It's not divine. We're not political animals. We can change. It doesn't there's no one way of doing things. There's lots of different ways of doing things that might have a state, might have different degrees of it, or might not have a state at all. Uh, but the one worrying thing is that if everything's conventional, would Epicureans be against the idea of rights or something like that? Uh, this is something that, that I, uh, I talked about in the book. Um, Bentham said rights are nonsense on stilts, famously. So <laughs> that seems a very shocking thing to say because... We really think human rights, that's maybe the only thing that can justify you going to war is to preserve human rights and the right not to be incarcerated for no good reason or just political reasons, um, um, the right to defend yourself, the right to all sorts of other things. Um, we feel very deeply that these are somehow intrinsic to human beings. But the Epicurean position is that's kind of a superstition and that what we call rights are really decisions that we can't imagine going back on. Uh, we've decided you shouldn't be held without trial indefinitely in solitary confinement. That's just a really bad thing that we're never going to change our minds about. So we're going to call that a human right. And so on for things like um, the right to health care, the right to an education. People do disagree about those things, whether there's a right to them or you have to earn them or you have to be lucky. Um, but uh, if you take an Epicurean perspective and you think you have a right to those things or that people do, then you're saying, well, that's um, the balance of pleasure and pain is such that those allocations should be made. How does that play into going back to earlier in the conversation on other regardingness. It seems like at some level you could simply define a right um, as taking as taking seriously like the the worth of others to a very high 
level, right? So if if I should care about your well-being and I care a lot, then I will end up believing that you have certain rights or at least acting as if there are things that it's always wrong for me to do to you. So does that – if rights are, are conventions or they're simply things that, you know, like we've, we've gotten to a point where we can no longer imagine going back on this, but that's that's not a strong support for them because there always there always will be people who can imagine all sorts of crazy things um, and that, that evolution of it. There are lots of things that we couldn't imagine going back on now that people 200 years ago couldn't have imagined holding the position that we do. Um, does, does that conventionality undermine this – this notion of like a necessity of regarding the welfare of others and not just my own? Does it like just go back as like an acid and eat at that requirement too? I think it has. Um, it was meant to have that intention when, for example, the UN came out with a list of, I think, 42 different rights that people have globally. And you might say, well, where did that come from? We, did we just look into the interior of people and see there are 42 things that we are obliged to do for them at whatever cost? So, yes, an Epicurean says that's kind of superstitious. But we can still discuss whether it would be good to further other people's – distant other people's lives in those 42 different ways and how much it would actually cost us. And this is where I think people are often a little bit misinformed. So Partha Dasgupta, for example, estimated somewhere that you would need only 5.5 percent of global GDP to bring everybody in the world up to a decent standard of fresh water, <clears throat> enough food, enough health care. That's not a huge amount. And you, know, you could set the bar quite high probably for 10 percent. So it's not as though we're being asked to go you know, live in huts so that other people can get their vaccinations or, or anything like that. So this brings up um, something. It's This is like a broader issue. This is a take a step back sort of issue that I, I thought of as I was reading your book. Um, and it it came up in the context of your political discussions. You have a chapter, I think, like Epicureanism and Social Justice, um, I think is the title of the chapter. But um, but I think it's it's also it's it's broader than that. Is that we've got these we've got these moral theories, and so what you're what you're doing in this book is saying you ought to be an Epicurean, and here's how to do it, and here's why I think you will benefit. You ought to want to be an Epicurean, um, and so what that involves is that that project fundamentally involves saying taking this this theory as articulated by Epicurus as Lucretius, um, you know, extracting something from that, and then operationalizing it, applying it in the world so that it becomes meaningfully action guiding. I can say like as an Epicurean, I'm faced with this situation. How should I respond based on my Epicurean priors? Uh, but that that move, that that taking action depends on stuff external to Epicureanism per se. So it, it depends on knowledge of the world, on other theories that we accept or reject. Um, and how do we – so like you and I, I'm quite certain we disagree on a lot of political issues. Um, but but our disagreement isn't necessarily – like we could we could accept we could both accept 
a certain set of Epicurean priors. Like we should act in ways that are the best interest of ourselves and others. We should, you know, try to help when the costs aren't outweighed and so on. But we could get to radically different conclusions based on other knowledge that we have, other beliefs. And so given that, um, how do we how do we meaningfully like be Epicureans or be any other theory and know how to act rightly in accord with that when when we can get to such divergent like actual actions in the world does that make sense like i'm i'm kind of talking my way through but yeah that's <clears throat> right that's a great question so right so um right it seems to me quite possible that say you would you would accept that the world is made of atoms and we're all going to die and there are no gods who created sure. things. And yet, as you say, you and I might have um, quite different beliefs about um, desert or taxation or what we do about poverty and slums and, and things like that. And I think, well, still the Epicurean perspective is quite helpful because it says um, there's a, there are scientific um, scientific facts that could help us decide, you know, which of us has the right policy. We're all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to make the world a decent place for people, but still not have to sacrifice too much of our own enjoyments. So we all agree on that. And then, then the question is, well, how does the world work in invisible ways? Um, causality that we can't directly perceive such that it's causing, say, poverty or unemployment or warfare. And the Epicurean says, well, there's an answer to that because these things are all mechanisms and there are no supernatural influences. And if we find out how society works, how the world works, then we can see how we can right, um, have the right kind of social technology and economic technology that will improve things. So it's a work in progress kind of philosophy. It keeps moving forward every time. Exactly. It's never just one, like the Stoics have one set of principle, virtue is the aim, and that's that. But Epicureanism will always just be changing everywhere. It says, yeah, learn, learn about the world. There's so much to learn. And when you've learned, um, maybe you'll see how to make things better. But is there a, I don't know, call it like an epistemic humility requirement. So if so one of the you know one of the critiques that sometimes gets made of utilitarianism or consequentialism in general is it introduces like an analysis paralysis sort of problem. If like I the right action for me to take is the one that's gonna produce the best consequences and I have to add up all of the consequences both now and into the future and everyone who might be impacted, that's an extraordinary amount of information that might be impossible for anyone to know, but is certainly impossible for me to know in the moment because I can't take the rest of my life to make the decision either. Um, and and so it's it might be that I act out of the best intentions and with you know strong Epicurean or consequentialist utilitarian principles, and I just get it wrong. Like the consequences of my act are not as good as I hoped or not quite the same as I expected them to be. Um, and we we all know that none of us think that we're omniscient beings, but it would seem that that would then counsel for at least trying to limit the scope of 
my actions such that if if I'm choosing between so like nutrition science is one of these things where it's constantly every day there's just you know a study that contradicts the prior study that contradicts the prior study and so on and so I can say like okay well I'm going to try the best I can but it might be that this thing you know if eating margarine um, turns out like that that was a mistake but I ended up just kind of hurting myself right but if I were to instead institute a policy through a political mechanism that said, OK, well, I'm going to make everyone eat this stuff, right? Then – so I, it's – I'm operating on the same level of knowledge. There's just as much of a risk that it's going to be the right or wrong for any given person as it was for me making it individually. But if I'm wrong, the consequences are much worse because I've now compelled everybody to make the same ultimately wrong decision. So with that, are we – if we're going to go through this, this add up the the consequences or happiness. Does that mean that we should avoid making decisions that are broader in scope, which would then seem to have cause a problem for political action, which is kind of by definition broader scope than individual action? Right. Um, well, there there are lots of um, really tough objections to consequentialism. Um, uh, you mentioned the sort of Kantian point that we just can't always predict the future. All these unexpected things happen and, and who are we to know how things are going to turn out, especially when we're dealing with millions of people and well, lots and lots of different factors coming into play. Uh, and there's also the problem of interpersonal comparisons of well-being. How do we know that something is – something valued by A is uh, also valued by B? Um, but I think what we what we can do is, um, and Amartya Sen has has made this point that instead of thinking in utopian ways about designing a system from the top down, we look for particular problems as they arise. And I mean, I think that's something your institute does. I was kind of looking at your books and articles and things. So. No, you you look at a problem like monopolies, or you look at a problem like urban poverty, and then you try to figure out what's going on, what has been tried, and what seemed to work, what didn't seem to work. And when you're lucky, the experiments are already there because different communities have tried it one way or tried it the other way. You don't have to go and force everybody to eat margarine or take some drug, or um, but you might have to. You know, experiment with giving them or not giving them food stamps or free vaccinations or something. Then the problem comes in that you're going to have to harm people eventually. That would go against Epicurean principles of let's have this tester, like, you know, let's try this new policy, let's test it on some people and maybe it lasts for a few decades and it's really harmed some people's like, ability in society to get ahead or to have certain kinds of education and whatnot. Um, so if I was... If, like the way I, everyone reads it differently and the way I interpreted it was is that you're not going to know very much. There's so much about the world to know. So it's best off just to stick to your own guns, to let other people do as they will do and to – there was a good quote by him and it was, the justice of nature is a pledge of reciprocal welfare. I thought that was a really good idea. Just the idea that we should just work together instead. Don't do these grand projects for other people. Just work together on an interpersonal level. That's what I would take from it. I just find it that's there's so many different perspectives you can come out with from Epicureanism. Mm, mm -hmm, yeah, um, 
You're right that some experiments may harm some people if you uh, do something or you decide not to do something that you were doing. But I think we are seeing the results of some experiments um, that involve taking things away that really have made things worse. Uh, people say that oh, I live in New York now. People say, "Oh, New York is so much safer than it was in the in the seventies and that's true. I think you're much less likely to get mugged in the street than you were in in the seventies but I'm someone who does a lot of walking around, and you know, when I go to the South Bronx, I think whatever policy is uh, in play here it's just not working. These people are really miserable. The streets are full of trash. They're lying down on the sidewalk and there are signs saying, don't lie down on the sidewalk. You can't camp here in front of Harlem 125th Street Station. So things are not working and they're not working in um, in a city that is incredibly rich because then you go 100 blocks downtown and um, it's just money, money, money everywhere. So... Here seems to me some kind of intervention um, is needed, and there were forms of intervention that I think were being done earlier that are not being done anymore. But this, I think, this brings it back to this question of so this is a Epicureanism, and this is a common theme in a lot of the ancient ethics is that they're doing they're doing ethics. Um, and I know like ethics and moral philosophy can be used interchangeably, but I tend to think of them more as like ethics is like guide for living, um, whereas moral philosophy is we're going to analyze right action. Um, and and so this is it's meant to be a personal ethics. Like you as the individual are going to act in the world. Um and and so if we're saying, okay, so we're not, you know, we can't at some level, we can't say like, well, we're gonna we're gonna institute an Epicurean state from the top down because we we don't necessarily know exactly what that would look like, but that's also like not really on the table as an individual. You know, like as an individual, you just get to do the kinds of things an individual can do. So you can you can see what's going on in New York, and then you can donate to a particular cause or support a particular candidate or push for a particular ballot measure and and vote for or against it. But it's this it's this very like limited thing. Um, and you have to kind of take the world as you find it. And it it seems to me that there's there's a problem there again for like the action guidingness of it. There's a so there's a worry I think that any given ethical theory becomes um, can become a a mechanism for kind of justifying our priors. In a sense, um, so we, you know, so I, I'm very interested in in Buddhism um, and have read fairly deeply in like early Buddhist texts, and then I see that Buddhism has become very hip in Silicon Valley and whatnot. But you read these people, and they're using you know Buddhism to like, well, this is this is the way I'm like I'm running my startup on these principles. Like, well, no, like it's it's that's not how it works. Like you're kind of you're you're just taking a handful of things and like justifying your priors. Um, and and in the political realm, I worry how much the priors are doing all of the work. I guess um, so. So take like poverty. Um, we can say, well, there were there were programs that were, say, social welfare programs that were giving people money or were 
supporting you know people in certain ways and so maybe the answer is you know the, the prudent thing to do would be to reinstitute those programs but we might also say that, that the reason we see these widespread poverty is because of occupational licensing that's keeping people out of professions by you know ending competition for existing people um, or it's you know stop and frisk policing or it's the war on drugs it's like so it's instead of like we should start doing X the the way to end poverty is just to stop doing a through F you know um, and and so we can have those disagreements and we could have we could have those disagreements with like lots of different moral theories so I I published a book with libertarians org edited volume called arguments for Liberty that was I got a bunch of philosophers to articulate their preferred moral theory and then argue for why libertarianism flows from it. But you could do the same book for why progressivism flows from it um, or why conservatism or why Marxism or, you know, like it's um, and some of them might seem more plausible than others, but you could reasonable people could do that sort of thing. And so that's my question is is like if we we adopt this theory and then we go out into the world, in what ways does the theory, so in this case it could be Epicureanism, but this would apply to all sorts of things, in what ways does the theory like really change the kinds of things that we already wanted to do or already prefer to do or already believe? Gosh, oh, that's that's a large question. So um I think one one point you wanted to make is that sometimes um, things we have done that we thought were incrementally useful in helping people, like having a bunch of regulations for becoming a, I don't know, um, sports physiotherapist or something. You need an MA or something. We now say, well, that's just irrational and making things worse. Certain zoning practices or commercial practices could just be making things worse. And so, yes, that's something to keep in mind. I think the the important prior, as you're calling them, sort of a new concept for me in Epicureanism is the powerful and clever ones will try to take advantage at the expense of the more clueless and weaker ones. That's just sort of a priori. And um, there are many places where that isn't happening, but the place that everybody's worried about right now where it is happening is global wealth, um, staying out of the taxation system because very clever lawyers, very clever financiers have figured out how to do this. And this is just an example of this Epicurean principle from the history of humanity that that's what they do. And um, politically, that's what we have to combat ethically and politically. When the average person right now um, who – what – you look around kind of the way that people – typically people say in the US live, um, this bracketing side politics, just like daily life sort of stuff. Um, what would – if if more people took Epicureanism seriously, what kinds of things would we change about the way that we live? Uh, um, <clears throat> I think we would consume less. We would um, – we would – do more things with our hands and minds and in the outdoors. Um, we would thereby preserve the planet. Growth would have to be zero growth. 
I don't think we can go on indefinitely just taking stuff out of the ground unless we all want to really live in a plastic bubble on Mars, which I don't think we do. So I think we could um, we could retool our lives to have just as much on Epicurean principles enjoyment um, without as much acquisition, without as many things, without as many consumer goods, without as much throughput, as the economists call it. We started this conversation by noting how hot ancient ethics seem to be. And so Epicureanism has competition on the, the, the pop philosophy bookshelf, I suppose. So why should someone who is looking for an ancient ethical theory um, pick the one you're advocating over the others? Um, I don't think Stoicism works. Okay? Um, Stoicism says that uh, when anything goes wrong in your life, and it will go wrong, um, you just have to get some distance on it and see everything from a very detached perspective. Marcus Aurelius has absolutely lovely passages about this. They're aesthetically beautiful, but um, do they even work? And I'm not persuaded that they do. Where the the, the Stoic says, um, emotion is your enemy. You want to have a tranquil life in which you are undisturbed by things. And the Epicurean says, no, the emotions, and George Ainsley, I think, has made this point, uh, the emotions are what make life worth living. And you've got to accept that there will be ups and downs. You just want to be reasonably prudential so as to avoid the, the worst things that can happen to you. And, of course, you do have to sometimes come to terms with your illness or your losses or your uh, political disgrace or your intellectual failure. But you don't have to live as though you're always preparing for the worst. You can let things come. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, you can find our Free Thoughts discussion group on Facebook or on Reddit at r slash Free Thoughts Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Free Thoughts Pod. As always, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.